0: Hello, WVLP listeners. This is Keela Parkinson, your host of Tune In Radio for Your Mind, Body, and Soul. We are recording this episode on June 3rd. I don't normally mention the date because now we are in podcast mode, so you can hear this for time immemorial, or as long as anchor.fm is around. And um, today we are talking about um, social unrest. We're talking about that specifically. We're talking about how to be mindful about it, which may seem really anathema to a lot of people. So we're going to try and give this uh, conversation the justice it deserves and give it some honorable space. And joining me to do this uh, sort of daunting task is Mr. Mark Hawley, who is himself formerly from the region. Mark, thank you for being on the show today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Kilo. And you still have family in the region, correct? That's right. Okay. Uh, my immediate family is I'm still there. His immediate family is st- still in the region. He grew up in the region. And um, so I can say region rat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah sure <laughs> oh, and, yeah. yeah and um and mark actually now is a business owner and um and works in minneapolis lives and works in minneapolis with his wife also a business owner there and um so really in the heart of where everything started for america right now and the things you've been seeing for about a week it's been about a week right yeah it's uh
1: just a week and one day
0: a week and um, one day
1: yeah, it's crazy how fast it feels like a like a different world. It uh, does. When we were still worried about COVID less than like, a little
0: bit more than a week ago. Yeah, and you you know, and the thing is too, like we're not as worried about it now, but we're still worried about it. We're still worried about the economy, yeah. we're worried about COVID. Now we're worried about the social unrest. And so it's like three waves of crises hitting us at once and it's a very, very disorienting time as it has been, and it's getting more and more disorienting um and i just want to say this perspective that the show has had for a while um it's disorienting and it's something that i guess maybe has been needed in this case in particular i think you know we're really seeing ourselves evolve hopefully through this mm-hmm. um having some things that have been really intolerable really be spoken and really be heard in a way that they haven't before so that's our goal today and um yeah yeah, and i've asked mark to join me and uh mark not only is he from the region and lives in minneapolis but also um he is a combat veteran correct Okay. Yes, and that's so right. <laughs> so marine. I'm not going to say former marine because I know that that's yeah, not a phrase. Yeah, <laughs> he's he, yeah, yeah. Um, but he is a civilian marine now. Is that is that a phrase? Can I say it that way? Uh,
1: just straight marine. <laughs> straight <is good>. marine. <laughs> okay, he's
0: a marine. Yeah, there, there you go. Just marine. <laughs> that's right. I know my cousin, my cousin who's my and my father who are also marines. They are, um and are not active. Uh, duty. Then um, that's the way to say it, right? They, <laughs> they yeah, probably they're probably yeah. like rolling their eyes at me we if they're hearing got this.
1: All the <laughs> <of saying laughs> anything, that's so. right. That's right.
0: Um, and and uh, and so interestingly, also Mark has used that um, knowledge and that skill set um, to teach. And actually, I think I mentioned you on the show and some things I've learned from you. Um, he teaches mm-hmm. situational awareness, and he's specialized in teaching groups. Um, who have often been targets in this way? Minority groups who are easily targeted, very disempowered, very disenfranchised. <clears throat> and so, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not keep introducing you. And I'm gonna ask you to just share mm-hmm. a little bit of, more about yeah. those things and anything else you want to talk about with this.
1: Yeah, and I think that the the marine thing is probably the easiest way to, to get started because that's that's really where I got all my professional experience um, as I was getting started in this line of work. And it was something that I uh, always wanted to do, whether or not I knew I wanted to, if you know what I mean. Mm, yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I, w- I was raised in a relatively patriotic household and, um, you know, given a lot of stories and, and uh, whatnot. So I thought that uh, probably right when 9-11 happened, when I was in seventh grade, that was kind of what solidified my decision. I was going to become a A-Marine. So I tried college. It's a long story, but I tried, I tried college when I moved out to Minneapolis. That's why I moved up here. Um, wasn't cut out for engineering, dropped out, joined the Marine Corps, and I decided to join the, re, the, re, the Marine Corps Reserve um, due to the fact that there is a girl involved at the time. <laughs> <And> <laughs> I felt that I wanted to come back, finish school, stay with the same girl, all that kind of stuff. Um, so I ended up joining what's known as military police company Twin Cities, and that meant that my military occupation was specialty special was military police as my primary and combat partnership coach as my secondary, uh, my secondary job. Um, with those job skills or with those job assignments, we basically got uh, sourced to be embedded trainers, embedded police mentors with foreign militaries when we deployed. So when I went to Afghanistan, that was what I call like my uh, first clients and hardest clients that I've ever had. <laughs> um, not not and not necessarily due to the stuff that you would think, but it was mostly just due to the fact that they were they had decades on on us. They had been fighting the Russians, their had they been there for forever basically. And then we get it dropped off for, for nine months and we're there with a, with a quota to train them up on X XY and C and then that means that we're that we must be winning. So mm. I was very you know, like when I we didn't really know what our job was until we got there and then we did when we did land, we learned that we were training. We were running basically a training camp, um, and that was, uh, yeah, that, that was probably my, definitely my, my first brush with uh, being in a combat zone, living in a combat zone for the same period of time. And you got, and it's one of those things where, like, you know, you get used to it after a while, being you don't realize what you got used to until you come back home. Mm. And the nature of the Marine Corps re- Reserve is that they have very limited money in the first place, as a, as a federal. Uh, force and the reserve gets even less money so that's all to say that they basically couldn't afford to keep us on orders after we got home from Afghanistan so my turnaround time from Kabul to Minneapolis was about less than two weeks where I got dropped off at the airport wow. um, thank you for your service, don't add or subtract to the population and mm. check in uh, wow. so that that started about an 18 month um, transition period of getting back home uh, still in that combat mindset and the stuff that I went through just in that 18 months when I first came home uh, was, in retrospect, teaching me what it's like to be hypervigilant and why uh, the combat mindset just doesn't work in the civilian world. Even though people like to hold Marines up as that example of like, oh, like, you know, you must feel safe because you're, you must be always carry a gun because mm. you're a Marine. Um, and I want to be like a Marine, right? When I started training people in the in the Minneapolis here, people thought I was gonna train them to be like Marines. I'm like, oh. actually no, like hmm. if you wanna be like you wanna think like a Marine in the civilian world, you're gonna end up with an arrest record and just not have hmm. the time. So that's uh that's all I would say that that eighteen months was probably the hardest transition home um, that I was not prepared for. My meeting my wife definitely pulled me out of that though. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I met her I was going through some uh, security jobs. I basically kinda of got suck back into contract security. And it, that wasn't that bad of a job. I was working for Reuters Media and did a lot of intelligence analysis, risk assessment, stuff like that, it was stuff I was good at at the time. And uh, the funny thing is I promised my now wife, or girlfriend at the time, Heidi, that I wasn't going to go back to Afghanistan. There was no mm-hmm. way I was going to send back. Um, but I got that itch, and it was probably just due to do some unresolved trauma or just unfinished feelings that I, that I had about the country. Um, that led me to apply for a private security contracting job back in Kong, which, incidentally, was a more dangerous, more prolific area, region of Afghanistan than the first place I was deployed to in Afghanistan. So I ended up um, getting deployed. Uh, I took the job, and then I was in Afghanistan probably in less than about a week and half. It was actually a really fast turnaround time because they just needed people. Mm. Um, and that being my second deployment experience, I actually ended up spending 13 months in Afghanistan on a private military contracting job. And even that, like, when I like when I say who I worked for and what I was doing, like, again, it has, like, some like connotations or even mm-hmm. negative energy around it um, due to the fact that the company that I worked for was formerly known as Blackwater. And when I was working for them, they were known as Academy, um, just with their history. I'm not sure how familiar you are with their history. Only,
0: yeah, minorly. <clears throat> yeah.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. They, they basically had to change the name after
0: mm-hmm. they had those
1: incidents where sure. they basically. Um, we always joked and we didn't screw anything up, <laughs> so yeah. it's okay if I if if I do curse, I don't mind if you just or, you know eat me out or something. But oh yeah,
0: joke, yeah, we try not to cost because uh, we do have the FCC license at WVLP. Okay. So yeah, so thank okay. you for I'm, checking I'm in on that. On. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I don't have I don't have a
1: beep button. I wish. <laughs> <laughs> so we always say, yeah, we we didn't mess anything up there, and that's why I didn't change your name when I was out there. Yeah, okay. But um, <laughs> but yeah, that was where the idea for Atlas Defense started to take form, because um, I knew that like I took that job because I just wasn't fitting in in the company culture of Reuters Media, thompson Reuters, as I was reporting. And I just kept on noticing this cycle of uh, me getting into a job, keeping it for maybe two years at the max, mm. and then I would always quit a job like I. If I rack my brain, I literally, I've never been fired from a job. I always quit because mm. I just stopped. I just, I don't know, I would quit the managers, I stopped caring because I just mm. didn't feel like I was doing what I was supposed to do or what I was meant to do, um, which is why four and a half years into my business now, I can say without a doubt, like, this is definitely like what i meant to do, um, you found I'm it. I'm very happy with it yeah. and it's something that's more fulfilling than I thought I would have ever had, so, um. When I got home, my wife gave me all the bandwidth that I needed to focus on and my business and with it. Um, she owns a spa that she's had for about nine years now. So she gave me a lot of uh, bandwidth, a lot of leeway just to focus all on my business. And when I got started, I knew that there is something fundamentally wrong with the way that we tell people how to feel safe. Mm. And that is, to, in order to feel safe, you need to be the tough guy or gal in the room. Right, And naturally that's why people get attracted to military and to Marines and vets of, of any kind to teach them how to feel safe. Cause they think that the only reason Mark feels safe is because he knows how to feel in the 13 different ways. And the fact right. is, I really don't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your average Marine is not John Rick. They, mm. they have a saying, you know, like every Marine's a, a rifleman. And I can tell you that's not true. Today. I was a shooting coach and <laughs> there is a lot of Marines that are not riflemen. And, uh, <laughs> And that's just again trying to break that, con- trying to break that conception, would have been really hard had I focused on the traditional gun industry clientele, being straight white males, and right. those are the type of people that buy guns for the, and again not not just straight white males, but there is a significant portion of the industry that is supported by that demographic. And what I've noticed is that it doesn't matter what their identity, race, gender, age, whatever it is, but the fundamental thing I think that. It kind of elicits that sense of security due to the fact that they own a certain thing is that identity gets attached so quickly to symbols and ideas and not so much practical application mm. that, you know, buying a gun makes you feel a certain way. So that just must mean you're on safe. And I knew that that wasn't true in personal experience. Um, when I've had to deal with income with people with firearms, when they shot themselves, mm. shot the wrong person, um, I was doing research when I got my business started just about accuracy in a firefight. We found out that police officers um, and firefights tend to miss 82% of the time at less than wow. 30 yards. Uh, and the only time that they're that they're more accurate is when somebody's not firing back at them. Mm-hmm. Then their accuracy goes up to 30%. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that's even, so that's basically when they're shooting somebody that's unarmed or somebody that's running away from somebody with a cell phone. And even then they're still missing 70% of the time. So... I took all that information, you know, it kind of really reminded me of the stuff that I experienced when I was in the military, too, just fog uh, the combat, and naturally, mm-hmm. you know, you going to have some problems with the firearm, and you're actually using it in self-defense. Mm-hmm. But I still knew that the reason that I felt so confident when I was overseas wasn't because I thought I was the toughest guy in the room, but because I knew I could rely on my teammates, on my training, and on the overall um, drills that we had always done, with. so we, we knew exactly what our muscle memory was meant to do. Um, and that was something, again, that I realized Like I didn't want to exactly replicate that, but I wanted to serve somebody unique and give them the same peace of mind that I that I have um, and try to shorten that learning curve. So that ended up manifesting in me targeting uh, basically the, like you were saying, the minority population in Minneapolis being females, LGBT community, and just generally anybody that's been overlooked by the firearms industry, um, which basically made my, uh, my clientele very diverse all the way from straight white males, the females, the LGBT crowd, not anybody was is non-white. And uh, and really, like I said, it was just a really interesting um, proof of concept, really. Once I started talking to all my clients and, and asking them, like, oh, how did you come across my business? Why did you come to me? Mm-hmm. I had several clients that came to me after going through bad experiences yeah. at other ranges, at Groupon classes. And I just always had that kind of hunch that like, I didn't want to compete you on know, price. I didn't want to... Um, Try to take shortcuts. There's a lot of people that they, they take shortcuts to get certifications out. Mm. So I decided to package it as a luxury service that was more all-inclusive, in, all where I basically act as a new personal trainer, but with and without firearms. And, mm-hmm. and honestly, like after the first year, I started noticing that there is a lot of other things that I was kind of overlooking in how I was feeling safe without a firearm. And that's when the unarmed bonds prevention process started coming out with situational awareness workshops um, starting to help me specifically target schools churches small mm. businesses that have teams of people that aren't traditionally trained in any kind of safety or security other than those annual powerpoint click through kind of trends mm. and then when stuff actually hits the fan yeah <laughs> um, if they don't actually have any practical hands-on training they end up freezing up that's and right that's what we're experiencing right now in minneapolis actually mm. Um, one of the projects that I'm that I'm managing is uh, symptom screening sites. And I can't say who the client is, okay. but the short of it is that um no fault of their own, but the people that I'm working with are on these emergency management teams that are built on top of their regular job. Mm. And now they're tasked with managing the risk of COVID on top of their regular job, and they just haven't really had a whole lot of practical experience or, or training and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So um that's why we were brought in as contractors to handle the symptom screening for that that client but that's again kind of what drove home the point for me that there just wasn't enough emphasis on practical application which is really what helped me end all this and manifesting a scenario style role player based training that puts my clients through real life feeling scenarios um, and again not to the ends of uh, what to do once somebody already starts shooting but more so to the ends of how to prevent that from first place how to watch for the warning signs how to communicate them, how to describe it, how to de escalate it, to it's a point, um, but not going so heavy on the reaction side. And as you may have seen around the United States, I think even in Indiana, I read about it in Alaska, but I think in Indiana especially, there was a case where the county sheriff did a mock execution of teachers with paintball guns. Oh, wow. And they called that active shooter training. Mm. Yeah. And those teachers were traumatized after it. Oh. They didn't learn anything.
0: They didn't. Yeah. And that
1: was. Yeah, and I can tell you right. as a professional trainer, there is no training value in firing off blank balance in school choice. Right. There's no training value in mock executions yeah. with, with teachers. Hmm. This, it's Someone's just, heart was in the right that, place I, but I'd not really educated. Yeah. Kind of choices.
0: Mm-hmm. So. Yeah.
1: So I knew I was going up against a pretty big status quo mm-hmm. in my industry, but I really didn't care because I was I was that kind of Marine that never really cared in the first place with people thought of me. I just, I mean, and I think that I got that from my experience growing up in mm, Indiana too. Mm-hmm. Like, I like I used to care a lot, and just mm. because that's why I was conditioned to really think that really mattered. Um, even now, I still am working through that kind of stuff. But yeah. like I said, I, that's kind of how I, that's kind of how I landed certain people. I'm yeah. In
0: and you bring up yeah thank you thank you and you bring up something that i want to move into in a second um i do want to say to our listeners you are listening to wvlp 103.1 fm streaming live from valparaiso indiana around the world at wvlp.org and also podcast form at anchor.fm slash tune in mindful radio if you would like to connect to us on facebook and reach out and ask mark some questions i'm sure he may be interested you can do that at our facebook.com slash tune in mindful Radio page. I'm your host, Keila Parkinson, and today's show is underwritten in part by Kiki Productions Inc. Communications Coaching, teaching exercises to help you cycle out of fight or flight in the moment. With a mission to create individual harmony to add peace to the world, Kiki Productions Inc.'s philosophy is when you are confident, focused, and authentic with your message, you are a magnet to those you wish to attract. Share the love at CoachKiki.com. Today, if you are just joining us, or maybe you've been listening, you may think, am I listening to the right show? I thought I was listening to a podcast slash radio show on mindfulness, and I'm hearing uh, uh, an interview with a Marine about um, <laughs> about situational right. awareness. And yeah.
1: Eclectic career, yeah. Yeah, ec-
0: very eclectic <laughs> career, very amazing, yeah. and so really, really very well-fitted um, to be a guest on this show. Um, and I do want to say, we're talking about, um, we're talking about this, we're going to move into, why are we talking about... War. Why are we talking about this kind of thing? Well, because it's part of the human experience, and so you know, here you know, a lot of us, you know, on the show, we talk about the Earth School. Uh, Many of our guests have referred to the Earth School, and so on the Earth School, war, trauma, violence—they are part of the human experience. And uh, Mark Holly is um, bringing together past experiences, current experiences, from a very mindful—I would say—very meta mindful in a lot of ways, kind of perspective by adding to experiences he has had and trying to make the world safer. And some people, you know, if you, if you feel like no guns ever, then, you know, we salute you, we applaud you, we give you the right to voice your own human opinion and have that perspective. And, um, and, uh, I'm going to come out right out and say, in case I haven't already on the show, I am NRA certified in my basic pistol. And, um, you know, that's, it's important to me. Um, I, uh, I would not have thought that I would be that way. And when I became a mom and my husband travels a lot and we are on acreage and I was like, you know what? I have to take care of these kiddos. And um, Mm -hmm. I will say that my son was a baby when I took Mark's situational awareness class when he gave one around at VU. And uh, it was really interesting. He gave us an exercise afterward to just kind of go out into the world and, and, practice paying attention there was one day that I had uh, I think I had a a brief minute between like some client meetings or whatever you know I had like 10-15 minutes and Mm -hmm. I would have normally spent that time meditating and uh, with my eyes closed typically is often how I will do that right and I decided to go into kind of a sort of meditative state of where I was really expanding my awareness but with my eyes open So then I kind Mm -hmm. of practiced paying attention. And I tell you, I noticed something, Mark, that I had never noticed before. I noticed I was in a Starbucks parking lot. I noticed every single man who came out of that Starbucks parking lot scanned the parking lot and made eye contact with me in my car three rows away from the door. Every Mm -hmm. single man who came out of there, no matter what his color or age, that's what he did. Every Mm -hmm. single woman, conversely, had her head down, Whether she had a phone in her hand or not, had her head down and only looked up quickly to cross the street and look for cars. And I was like, I do that too. Why are we not taught this, right? And then I had this interesting conversation after that, just after that, with someone, a a colleague who uh, was a Boy Scout. and, and was a Boy Scout leader. And, uh, and he said, oh, yeah, you know, we're trained that very often, right? We're trained that. And I was like, we weren't trained that in Girl Scouts, right? Like, that was not part of the training. And, and yeah. I also realized, why do I keep my head down? I kept my head down because it felt dangerous to make eye contact with men because then they would approach me for a conversation I didn't want to have necessarily, right? So I had learned to keep mm-hmm. my head down. But unfortunately, that response made me more of a target right and so then I, I was really paying attention to what you were saying and and how you were like you know this is why I focus on women you know or you know LBGTQ community and uh, minority communities and people who are not the traditional you know gun holder and and teach all kinds of tools whether it is carrying a gun or not and and to me the idea to really connect that with mindfulness because you saw you taught you know if you're in fight or flight when you're aware then you're not thinking clearly and so you need to also yeah. connect it to this mindfulness and that's what situational awareness really is so um okay so i want to thank you for that experience and for teaching me because, you yeah it was great it was really really <laughs> helpful to learn and in our in the class i remember sharing with you that um that i was always aware of who was watching my kids but i wasn't mm-hmm. aware of who was watching me and i was like Absolutely, woo! it yeah. really really sent that home so yeah so thank you for that mm-hmm. And, um, so, okay. So you, you mentioned growing up in the region and some experiences that you had, um, you know, and how you maybe tried to please people and then you learned not to please people. And so do you want to expound on that in in any way? People can't see you by the way. So uh, should we, should we say some things?
1: (laughs) What's i uh,
0: said so people can't see you by the way so should we say some things one thing we do want to say is that neither one of us is african-american and so um mm-hmm. even though we're talking about lots of different things and different um yeah uh, social unrest and um in minority segments we also want to very clearly say that we're not trying to speak for any voices that we don't speak for um yeah yeah so so
1: and that's something yeah and i think that that's a good uh starting point too because as as i was raising in northeast indiana specifically i was always told you know like we don't see color right yeah <laughs> and i always felt that that was just I, I thought that that was virtuous at the time um because i was raised in a societal vacuum to be totally honest mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that was and that insulated me from the way that the police are going to see me when i'm 18 mm-hmm. i moved mm-hmm. up to Minneapolis. that insulated me from truly understanding the racial slurs that are used as early as my elementary school years and I just, and that, I don't want to call it whitewashing, but that, um, that treatment of mm-hmm. a child of color, I mean, I'm not, I, again, like you are saying, I'm, I'm not African-American, but I am Latino. I was born in Boca Uh I'm obviously, you know, one of those types of people that uh, somebody would walk up to me in school or at a tournament or something. I was arrested for a long time. And the question would always be, where are you from? Where are you from? <coughs> and I'm like, oh, I'm like, I just live on Counterland Road between, you know, Porter County and Lake County. Mm-hmm. like, where are you actually from? Mm-hmm. And then it starts to feel like a, like a citizenship test or something. Mm. And I, I never really knew how to answer that question. Yeah. Fully. I always knew I was a, adopted. I always knew that I was born in Bogota, Columbia. Um, and then once that would come out, they'd be like, oh, well, you're the whitest brown person I ever met. Mm. Well, something to that effect. And I never really knew how to take that either because I I was one of the few persons of color in, in my school I went to school at Blue Grove High school Port Lakes elementary Blue middle school um, which is you know predominantly farming kind of community there were a couple I there were a couple of minorities in, in my grade but not too but we were never really connected um, just because I, for lack of a better way of saying it, I thought that I was a white person, until mm. I became an adult basically. Mm-hmm. And I think that that was just—I mean, I—I I can acknowledge my family for doing the best that they thought that they could with what they thought they had, even though that, um, even though there were resources and mm-hmm. knowledge back in the '90s too, about white privilege and transracial, transnational adoptions. Uh, that I just don't think that they thought was relevant maybe due to the religious part that they uh, kind of filled all that gap with and mm. I feel that religion was another thing that just was the way to answer all the questions mm. and it doesn't matter if somebody called you a wetback heart or mm. spick or something like that and God still loves you right and that's and that just seemed to be the cure-all for any questions mm. or problems that I had and no actual um, diving into my identity as far as accepting, like being out there in the open about the fact that, like, yeah, you don't look like anybody else, and mm. you are going to be treated differently because of the way you look, and you know, parents can love you as much as they want, but that's they're just not going to change the way the rest of the world sees you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, like when I try to explain white privilege to people, it's one of those things where it always elicits an emotional response mm-hmm. where, oh well, I personally had these horrible experiences, and I'm a white person, that just means that. There's no way that you're treated different just because you say that you're a minority. And I, Nothing was never made more difficult because of the color of your skin, you know. Right. And that's, and I still have to try to explain that to my own family. I love them to lot. Yeah. I hope that they hear this, too. And I hope that they read my books, and I hope that we're able to heal those kind of things. But it's something that um, I just recently have started to come to terms with a little bit more. Um, because I was very fortunate to come across an author that wrote a book on being a transracial adoptee as well. I think that, like, when I was a child, I always thought I was the only one. Like, my, my sister was adopted from the same orphanage, too. I just thought her and I were, like, the only mm-hmm. ones that were ever brown kids adopted by white like, family. Um,
0: yeah, because you didn't have you know, other neighbors and examples of that.
1: There's no frame of reference. Yeah, mean, right. They, they did take us to what they called a culture camp for the first, mm-hmm. I think up until probably like I was in fourth or third grade or something, okay. we went back to Ohio, the organization that set up the adoption and put on this culture camp thing so that the kids who work and each could get back together. But I stopped going to that when I was probably in like fourth or fifth grade or something. I was mm-hmm. very young. I never really understood like why that stopped happening or why mm-hmm. I stopped going. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe, I, I don't know why, but that was again just one of those things that I was like okay well i had like small you know and that was like a week and a half kind of camp right where yeah they Basically, it's free daycare you, mm. it's, it's not free but it's like a yeah. week daycare basically right where you your kids off and then like you know parents get they have the day free and whatnot so <laughs> it was kind of like a it was a good i'm glad that i had that opportunity mm-hmm. but even that wasn't uh that wasn't therapeutic, that wasn't, mm. that wasn't closing the loop as far as, like, my ability to, how it felt. I mean,
0: yeah.
1: when I would occasionally meet other Latinos at like, sporting events, um, again, between wrestling and cross-country and soccer, especially with soccer, um, I suck at soccer, but I got dropped in soccer because I hated baseball. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, you know, like, when I would meet a few other Latinos in, like, soccer, too, like, that would be, like, oh, that would then they would start to talk to me in Spanish and mm. I didn't know Spanish Yeah, I just, I, that wasn't a thing. Like I, I took high school Spanish. Sure. But that didn't, that didn't make me fluent. I mean, I was a terrible, I was a terrible student mm. too. Like I just, I just learned differently is what I figured out afterwards. <laughs>
0: I'm glad you figured um, that out. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. But, um, uh, but like I said, that that's all to say that, um, coming in terms with all that, Uh, took a lot of conscious effort and it's Mm -hmm. even recently coming into I'm manifesting in different ways now too just being more open about it and accepting that um, being a transracial about me just created some conditions that no one was prepared for
0: yeah
1: Um, then I'm you know I've got my wife now I've got my Uh, animals you probably saw my dog jump on me here uh, (laughs) Two other cats so (laughs) I mean I've got my family and my life as it is now I'm very happy with it and I know Mm -hmm. these kind of things but it's like I said it was just a surreal experience when I look back on it um, just realizing that I was truly actually you know being treated differently Mm -hmm. because of how it looked and I just never really had a name for that I never really Understood what that meant, other than like, I must be doing some, something wrong. I must have done something yeah. wrong to, do, to deserve being called these things. When it's a type of gaslighting. It, it can't be because of my color my skin, right? Because people don't see color, color right? No way. <laughs> right, yeah.
0: right. It's it's almost like it's kind of like a type of gaslighting that's happening. At, you know, when when that's your experience, yeah. where you're like, you know, people okay. are telling me they don't see color. They're treating me the way that they're treating me, and it must be connected to something I'm doing. And then people aren't acknowledging mm. it, right? And so yeah. um, the effect for your brain development winds up being the same. You strike me in the conversations we've had. Um, we've guest blogged on each other's um, blogs and things, and and um, mm. been. Professionally connected for a few years, and I appreciate it a lot. And you strike me as one of the more conscious people on the planet. And so I appreciate you just being here and being part of this and adding a voice to this and talking about it. Our show always features a book, and um, the book you're talking about, I don't know the name of it. Do you remember the name of it?
1: Yeah, it's called Seen on Color. Mm. Um, I can grab it really quick. I've Please, yes. This. We'll take a, we'll take a, some sort yeah, of I'll selfie you of you with here. it. That'd be yeah. great.
0: <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. So uh, we are, you know, I want to mention to any listeners that uh, we're still not in the station at WVLP. So Mark is there in uh, Minneapolis at his place and, and, um, and we're recording here um, remotely and, um and uh, you know, we're, we're going to go ahead and put that book also on the Facebook page. So, again, it's called See No Color. It's by Shannon, is it Gurney or Guinea?
1: Shannon Gibney. Yeah. Gibney, okay. G-I-B-N-E-Y. Anyway. Great. And I actually, I met the author at that event that I kind of wandered into. Mm. Uh, and she gave a spoken word performance. And there is... Oh, great. It was the very first event of its kind. And the organizers had no idea what to expect. Mm. But the room was packed. It was before covid It was a room designed maybe for like, I don't know, 50 people, and they squeezed about 150. Uh oh,
0: and don't tell the fire, (laughs) Marshall.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it was all of these transracially adopted children, and all of us had that same assumption that we were the only ones. Yeah. And I'm still processing that, um, but I'm not the only one.
0: Yeah, yeah. I thank you for that. You know, it's, it's emotional, it's moving. And and the fact that you are getting emotional about it shows that you're sharing something that's very deep and very personal and that you, you are conscious of it. So I really want to honor that and thank you. Um, I have only, I have only vicariously known this experience for others and, um, being very close to uh, people in my family, one of my very dear best friends growing up who had basically the same experience you're describing, um, you know, uh, I not, I'm not going to personally share their experiences or what I know of it on air today to honor them. But, mm-hmm. but I do know um, that it's so impactful. <clears throat> and that parents, again, being well meaning, being loving, being, you know, wanting to open hearts and homes and, and, um, and, and fill needs where needs are, or whatever, um, and, and theirs and, and children's needs. Um, it's wonderful. It's It's a wonderful thing. And being a mom myself now, I can say that, like, we definitely mess a lot of stuff up, right? There's all kinds of things you think you're going to do, things that you don't know, how, you find you don't know how to talk about. And um, I have mom friends now who are mothers to um, translate racially adopted children. And, um, and they struggle still, you know, today, of course, with these questions. And so a book like this is very, very, very helpful. And being able to have mm-hmm. a conversation, being able to name it for the kiddos, being able to help everybody process, right? So important. And like you said, connecting people so that we don't feel isolated and our stories you know wherever we are on this is so so yeah. so helpful um and um you know and also so this was like around the 90s I think you're talking about like where you know that was that whole era of see no color and you know their color doesn't exist and whatever and it and it was weird it was weird because I was I was why well, would I up at college age around then and it was a it was not my actual experience I remember um mm-hmm. wanting to be like that with my friends and we I you know um very having these experiences where, um, you know, uh, for instance, um, a woman who was becoming a dear friend of mine and we had so much in common, um, except for ethnicity, right. And, um, and wanting to go to certain concerts together or to certain, um, community events, you know, cultural events that were happening on our campus, but, we had a conversation we had to name it and say if I go what are your friends going to say how are your friends going to treat me and vice versa and it was this whole thing you know and um and both of us being like I don't think I'm brave enough to do this so we're kind of keeping our friendship in the closet a little bit and that really sucked and I want to say for myself like I absolutely know because of people I grew up with because of these things because of my vicarious experiences I absolutely know that I have lived a life of white privilege I um when I was a child um I had an experience that was also vicarious and very impactful. It really, really hit me in the face with, um, you know, just how privileged I was, um, as far as, uh, racially, because, um, I remember my grandmother, she was going through a divorce and she lived in a, um, very poor apartment complex. And I was only three or four at the time. And, uh, it was a brief period of time, and she was about the only white person in the, in the whole complex. And, and I was the only white child. My sister was a baby. I would go to visit. My cousins were Vietnamese, and uh, we would all show up and visit. And so on the playground, I was the only white kiddo. And the kids were so, I was so little that, you know, if anybody was mean to me, I didn't take it. I had no idea what it was from. And my cousins were older and very protective of me. So I just thought it was just older kids being bullies. I mean, I had no idea, right? And yeah. it kind of stayed there for me it just stayed there for me. Right. I didn't move on, you know, until, you know, I was an adult and could look back and then was like, oh, okay, well I would get that. You know, I understand how how these kids might feel. But the reason I got to the point where I would understand how these kids might feel is because I had one little kind of BFF there and we would like play and teach each other games and things. And we would like play in in the little grassy area behind the apartment complex. And, um, and she was teaching me the trick where you turn your eyelids inside out.
1: Oh gosh. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> Don't do this at home, kids. Any kids, right? Don't do this at home. She was teaching me that trick, and um, and her mom came and saw us, and she was like, I told you not to do that, whatever, you know. And so she, she was going off and getting scolded, you know, and I was like, oh, I guess I'll go, you know, find my grandma now. And so I was kind of moving away, and they were just around the side of the building. And I think I was just, like, picking dandelions or grass or something. I hadn't moved on because I was so young. I hadn't moved on to my grandma yet. And I heard their conversation, and it was that conversation that – african-american mothers have to have with their kiddos and this would have been in the 1970s the early 1970s and it was it's a it's a terrible conversation and i all i had to do was hear at one time that conversation that said she said don't you teach that white girl that and it was about how she was going to be treated as a little girl teaching white girl things that weren't good for white girls what would happen to her and I went to tell, you know, ask my parents and my grandmother, like, is that true? Would that happen to her? Would that happen to my friend, you know? And they were like, I don't remember how they responded, honestly. I remember being assuaged. I remember being horrified that my friend could be hurt for that. And and I was like, I was asking them, are you going to hurt her? Is she in trouble? And they were like, we're not going to hurt her. We're not going to hurt her, you know? And for my parents, they were able to whitewash it for me. And And I know that, you know, that was it. And then, like, you know... We were on the very, very minor end of mild vandalism and things, right? Like from people who didn't appreciate things that, you know, people we were friends with or whatever in in our, in our small town, very, very minor, you know? And so again, like knowing how mild that was just from association, let me know how terrible it was on a day-to-day basis for other people sometimes. So that's where, you know, I just, um, if there is anybody who, I know we have a lot of white listenership. Um, I am valparaiso is you know and so so any, if anybody is still wondering like where is all this anger coming from it's so profound
1: yeah yeah and it's it's just about anger that's in Minneapolis right now my 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 brother-in-law is um, Heidi's brother right and if you saw Heidi my my, uh, my, my wife's wife is mm. um, she grew up in a uh, more violent part of Minneapolis mm. violent parts of Minneapolis for really. Uh, when you really look at it, at the, at the numbers, it's just basically a seductive community that pushes all the crimes in a certain part of the city mm-hmm. of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so her, her brother still lives out there. He's very heavily involved in the community. He's actually leading one community blockchain on a basis now with all the instability. Um, but the sign on his front lawn um, that he feels has, has, has helped uh, at least his house not be uh, targeted yet. Is mm-hmm. actually a sign that says it's okay to be angry. And oh, good. And we want to acknowledge that yes, like there's there's a reason there's so much anger right
0: now yeah.
1: um, that is being heard, and that and that's awesome. Uh, and that's and that's what I think at least needs to be acknowledged, given what's going on in Minneapolis right now. And the vast majority of things that are happening are peaceful protests. Like right now, yeah. there's a march going on down to many, Minneapolis, tens of thousands of people. That are, uh, that are furious with our police unit chief that is out there being proud about how, how many people that he's killed. Mm. Instead of during an interview, mm. I killed three people. I don't feel bad about it. Mm. He's also the same guy that's been investigated for wearing a white power patch on his oh. motorcycle jacket. Mm. And he's still the boss of the police unit in Minneapolis. Uh, well. So obviously, people are outraged. The more that they're finding out about this, this is one of those things, again, that like, people like myself and others... We thought that was common knowledge, that the mm. police were corrupt the inside out, that they're mm. extorting businesses for protection. I was a security manager at the James Valentine VFW. It's a VFW that I remember at in uptown Minneapolis. And they constructed some weird state stat- or, uh, city statute that said that after a bar has to call the police X amount of times in a certain time time frame, they have to have uh, off duty police officers being paid 60 bucks an hour to be there. Oh, my gosh. That's true. Wow. But the funny thing is that they would never do anything. Like when I was a manager there, they were the hardest ones that worked because all they wanted was to get paid cash at night. They never wanted to arrest anybody. They never wanted to stop fights. Oh, they wow. would watch as drunk people would wander into the middle of the street. And I'm like, now they're in public. Aren't they your responsibility? They're like, no, we're not supposed to do that. Wow. So they would just be paid to be a, a uniform as a deterrent, um, mm. which is what they said that they were doing, but they literally chose to do nothing to keep the park safe. So. Mm. They're, that's also the same reason that Minneapolis public schools just divested from the, from the police department. I don't know if you saw that, but mm-hmm. they just made the announcement today um, that they canceled their protection contract with the um, Minneapolis police. And the police are charging them 1.3 million dollars per year out of the school budget. Oh wow! For protection.
0: Yeah, and, wow.
1: Uh, again, I mean, that's 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 why, as, as you can tell, um, people are, are furious with the police department because when you look at it, it's pretty much a, a racket for protection that you would get out of organized crime but this is sanctioned by the state so people are furious right now and rightfully so and that started out with, with the protest and then it escalated to the robbery damage the destruction the um, burning down of the police precincts and you probably saw my facebook post maybe about um the gun carrier lesson 101 yes yes you legally <laughs> cannot kill somebody for defensive property in the state of minnesota and that was about the same time that third, that third precinct got burned got burn, mm. got burned down mm-hmm. um and some of the statements that came out after that i mean it makes total sense that the, that the mayor and the and the governor realized that it's probably better for the city for the residents that have been traumatized by the police to destroy that building instead of killing people to, yeah to and Bob Kroll, the police union, he said, oh, we put down plenty of protests in the past. We would have put this one down, too. Um, but that would have definitely gone to the force on a riot outside of the police station.
0: Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, it's, I said,
1: yeah, yeah it's, that's part of the reason why people are so angry right now is because just of the status quo that's been out loud in the, in the city for so long. Right. Um, I've experienced it and I got in over plenty of times, mm-hmm. uh, driving all around. Mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. On my old car, I used to advertise that I do firearms training, and that led to a lot of private stops where they mm. pulled on me, "How many guns do you have in car?" "Sir, wow. I've got X, Y, and Z." And uh, with my new car, that's why I don't advertise on my mm. car. <laughs> mm-hmm. um,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: And like I said, it's just one of those things where it's a constant and and anxiety when you get pulled over. Um, due to the fact that when I went back to school, so after my first per- after my first deployment, I went back to school at St. Thomas to study law enforcement, and that, that sophomore year is when I saw, like, how they were trained law enforcement at the beginning, and that was with shock videos and dash cam videos mm-hmm. of police officers getting attacked by minorities at traffic stops.
0: Yes. Oh.
1: Training them from oh. the beginning that to be, you do yeah. a traffic stop with minority, you're probably going to get attacked, and that's what they're teaching, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-old yeah. kids that are playing too much call of duty. Yeah. That... There's a good chance you're going to get attacked anytime you pull somebody over. More often than not, it's going to be black So that's why I gladly dropped out of my sophomore year to go to Afghanistan instead of staying in school. I people. see. I realized that just wasn't for me. That wasn't for me. So like I said, I mean, that's my experience in Minneapolis. Uh, and what's and with everything that's happening right now, I think the most interesting thing is the money of it, of uh, it. It up at all. Uh, there's a movement going on right now called Divest NPE and they're encouraging everybody to look at where the money's going, who's spending it, mm. and how it's being spent uh, once it gets into the police union and mm. into the police. And all this money is being paid for protection to the police and to the unions is being used for robber termination lawsuits to refer defending the police officers after these murder charges. Mm. I mean... These four police officers just got fired. Their police union chief is about to file a wrong termination suit. And the money that he's using to file that suit is money that was donated to the police union by a list of darts. And that list is being released. People are finding out who those people are, what those organizations are. And, you know, that's not the only reason why Target was destroyed or obliterated, mm-hmm. But that's that's one of the reasons when people found out that Target had donated hundreds of thousands I of dollars see. to the police department. So, Organizations are being held accountable for that kind of connection now. Uh, and the organizations that do have the most clout are realizing that they have a, a voice, like Minneapolis Public Schools may announce today that they're no longer renewing their contract for protection um, our public schools, which is opening up opportunities. So um, my, I actually just had a conversation with the uh, Minneapolis uh, Public School Board Director um, who's interested in our school safety training.
0: I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, Mark Holly, this has been such a sure. such an interesting conversation to me that I am forgetting to do station breaks. So I do want to uh, no no, that's that's on me. Um, I do want to say to listeners that you are listening to WVLP one oh three point one FM broadcasting in Valparaiso, Indiana, streaming live around the world at WVLP.org every Thursday at ten AM Central and every Sunday at four PM Central. We are also on anchor fm slash tune in mindful radio and and this show is underwritten in part by Unity of Northwest Indiana, currently developing the premier spiritual center of NWI with meditation walks and retreat house events. Learn more and support the growing movement at UnityNWI.org. We're talking about very uncomfortable conversation subjects. I totally missed the whole middle Station break, by the way. <laughs> no, don't be sorry. I, that's me. I'm like, I didn't even try a high sign. I just was listening and talking. Um, so we're talking to Mark Holly, who grew up here in Northwest Indiana and currently lives in Minneapolis and has been for eight days experiencing um, a lot of the unrest and a lot of, and he's really, um, uh, he's got a very interesting perspective because we've been talking a lot about your military background and what we haven't moved into that I'd like to in the next 15 minutes. I can't believe the time has gone by so quickly is uh, talk about the mindfulness that you do. Um, I know your wife owns a spa. You guys both practice yoga. Uh, Tell me some more about what you use to connect these tools and especially how it has helped you and helped others at this time.
1: Yeah, I would say that uh it probably started started last year. I mean, if I go all the way back, I mean when I was in the Marines, we always had every Sunday we had a a religious break for like I think it was like two two hours. And you had the option to go to a Christian service, Jewish service, Muslim, or Buddhist. And I had more than my fill appreciate. No, offense. Yeah, <laughs>
0: no but, offense, right, yeah.
1: But <laughs> I had I had heard that the Buddhist service was a place to take a nap for two hours. So <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go just went go there for the and nap. take a nap because you were not sleeping anywhere else during basic training. So that was my first touch point with uh, that was my first touch point with, with Buddhism was in basic training act, actually. Mm. And it, after that, it was touch and go for a long time until about two years ago when I discovered the Lim Hof method, of uh, deep breathing and cold, cold immersion combined with loving kindness mm um that really at first i think i just liked the challenge of standing in a cold shower and seeing how that how that felt but after doing that for, for quite a while i'm like okay I, i'm okay taking a completely cold shower the entire time <laughs> and i realized that the next step was called immersion therapy mm. um which i started i started doing that last year not this winter but last winter where we basically cut a hole in the ice um meditate for a little bit beforehand jump into the water And that really forces a a deep breathing kind of exercise Mm -hmm. that um, actually, surprisingly, lets you stay in the ice for anywhere from five to 15 minutes. And you get into a meditative state when you're in that ice water, um, whether you want to or not, because you can't do anything but be present with hope. And I think that's, when I tried that for the first time two winters ago, that was probably one of my significant breakthroughs when I realized, like, it's not mental toughness. It's mm-hmm. not, again, being the toughest guy in the room. Um, it's being mentally present long enough to be in your body and realize that you can survive this. You've survived worse. You, you'll, you will survive worse in the future. Um, and this is just one of those baselines. So, getting up cold immersion therapy definitely helped quite a bit. Um, and part of the Wim off method is actually balanced also with meditation and mm-hmm. mindful breathing. So, the breathing exercises, the deep breathing exercises is also I think what kind of got me primed for what we're going through now because this winter I spent a lot more time going to the lake with some other friends. We've called home the ices every Sunday that we, that we go as a group. And I'll go at least one other day throughout the commission on the Wednesday. Um, and all that stuff, like I said, kind of got me ready for like January when I decided for my year's resolution I wanted to stop going to the gym.
0: Stop going uh, to the gym. Oh wow! Stop going. to the Interesting. gym. Interesting.
1: Yeah, I was a member at a bodybuilding gym, the local, local gym. I I love the gym. It's where a bunch of meatheads go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm and, and it's kind of hard. I'm, I know that you just can't can't see us now, but. Uh, oh but, I,
0: yeah, oh, I'm giving yeah. Them hand signals. I your mic uh, actually when you let go of it, if you stay right where you are, it's it's perfect. Oh okay, good. Okay yeah, now? thank you. Okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, but. I'm, I'm like five five 150 pounds, and uh, I've been vegan too for about three years. And when I was going to the gym, I was actually maintaining like 165, but I realized I was putting myself in so much stress just yeah. for the sake of going to the gym, training five days a week for two hours, that I'm like, what am I doing this morning? Nobody's mm. paying me to work out. Yeah. And I'm getting into this stressful state just for the sake of looking good in the mirror. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, I decided that, yeah, that I would quit the gym on January 1st and I started going to uh, yoga classes actually at mm. my office, my office that we work downtown Minneapolis. And the gym on the first floor of the tower um, is included in my membership. So, I was walking past free membership every day oh, wow. to yoga class. So, I'm like, what am I doing? I can save money and I can go to yoga. I'm not being stressed out. So, it was that pivot, I think, towards, towards yoga. Um, Committed to the deep breathing exercises. When I would do it in the morning, my my uh, wife would get worried for crystal for
0: that group. Right, would
1: stop
0: reading. Oh yes. Minutes. Oh wow. Um, <laughs> okay, now <laughs> I'm going to interrupt you and practice. ask you. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm going to interrupt and ask you. When you did get to that place where you, you know, were you reaching kind of an elevated consciousness in that moment, or was it just a nothingness? What was it like for you internally at that point?
1: It's like. Uh, eczematosus or like an outer body kind of feeling where you're basically, and you don't just start, you, you don't start by just like not breathing for two minutes,
0: right. right, no, that, definitely that not. We want, And we're not going to encourage people to do this if you're not practiced. Make sure no, you for sure. Look this <laughs> up first. <you> know? <laughs> yes.
1: But you hit your so you go through those reps, you usually go through about 30 or 40 reps of so deep breathing. Then when you get to that 40 or 45th rep, you hold the breath in and basically what you're doing mm. with that deepest breath after, on the 30, on the 40th uh, breath there um, is that you're just holding it and then you're letting the oxygen yes. be absorbed in yes. your bloodstream and you, before you realize it, like you're, you can hold your breath like I said, not even trying to for about two and a half minutes um, and that's what freaked my wife out the first whole times I was doing it, she was laying yeah, yeah <laughs> Mark's doing his thing and then he just stopped breathing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's that, but yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of like the cold water therapy mm-hmm. where you have to be present. Like your body starts having sometimes like a little physical reaction to it. Um, but you know what your limit is too. Uh, but it's also something where I, I it's hard to explain, but you feel uh, your psychically lighted part of yourself start to just be aware of the fact that you're in a gross material body. And that's something that, again, I I credit a lot of the books that I've read, um, some of the meditations that I've done, to be aware of the fact that mm-hmm. I'm occupying a physical body, yeah. but my consciousness and my higher, energetic self is just all working together. But it's also something that I don't pay attention to it. Um, it's it, it's hard to uh, be quite as grounded, I think, or I don't even say grounded, but. Uh, it's hard to be as self-aware when you're not aware of all those parts of yourself. So so true, so I think, true. I think that's what I got out of the out of the deep breathing, and you know, breathing is a big part of yoga too. Mm-hmm. So when I realized that I just needed to concentrate on my breathing more, my yoga practice became a lot more intuitive. Um, I and like like I said, I, I feel like that prepared me well for what's going on right now because the gyms are shut down ever since COVID started. Right. It's not, yeah, it's yeah. not exactly like your typical <laughs> setting as of now. So, I've, uh, so yeah, like I said, I've, i realized that um, when I talk about mindfulness in my classes, I needed to, to dive deeper in my own practice so I can convey that in such a way that's more palatable for a wider variety mm-hmm. of people. So I just say, be mindful. Um, I'm talking about being in that, in that doing, and there's a real distinction there between being and doing something where everyone wants to be positive, everybody wants to be a good person, but it's that the good part is that the hard is it requires time, commitment, mm. guidance, all that kind of stuff. And I'm not the best at it either. I especially with everything that's been going on. Um when I when I realize that I'm really I'm probably to uh, to a burnout or I've been sleep deprived for 24, 48 hours. I realized like now is the time that I'm even that to take. Is if I don't, then I'm not going to wake up. 21. I'm not going to really up rested. Yes. I'm not going to make the most out of this like nine minutes that I have to sleep. And like I said, actually, last time it was the first full night of sleep that I had.
0: Yeah, that's all yeah, that's a good. week there. So. Yeah. Um, I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine anybody, um, experiencing, uh, the things that are happening at such a close vantage point would be experiencing a lot of insomnia, no matter what their work schedule is. you've got work schedule on top of that. And then, you know, you have, um, old wounds also, right. From in in a variety of settings. So, um, I think it's, uh, I think it's wonderful that you're using your tools
1: as best as I can. You reminded me, I mean, I'm glad that you're brought me in today too to remind me too because yeah. I believe, you know, in, in the teacher and everybody and the student and everybody too. Um, and like I said, it's I, I know everything's connected like like you were saying at the beginning. And I feel like what's going on right now is reminding us of how people's connections really can go. And when you put the intention out there, it's it was it was crazy how I got connected to Minneapolis director of the, um, public schools. Mm. In less, in less than, like, three hours after wow. after three years of internally telling myself I had to do this by myself. I have to produce a product that is so good that they're going to come to me oh, uh-huh. instead, of, instead of me figuring out how to go to them. When, in fact, I didn't realize that one of the biggest blocks was the fact that the Minneapolis Police Department was extorting them for $1 yeah, like million right. every year. So they didn't even have a budget for this kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, so now they're open to the conversations. We got the conversation going, probably one of the biggest opportunities in my business. Uh, and all of that is just connected to uh, being vulnerable. And I put mm-hmm. that ask out there when I heard that Minneapolis police or that Minneapolis public schools was divesting from Minneapolis police. Yeah. Had I not heard about that, or even when I did hear about that, I initially was like, I'm gonna keep this close to the chest, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna tell anybody, mm-hmm. I'm just gonna figure it out. And there's something that gut checked me and was like, no, like. You are connected to them. You just have to figure out how. Yeah. Uh, it was
0: literally one degree of separation. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah. You know, and I um, I told you when I reached out and asked you just yesterday if you were willing to do this. Um, I had other content in the can for the episode that is to air. And um, and I had been reaching out all over the place trying to find, you know, somebody who would really speak um, particularly for the for the african african-american community i just felt like that was really really important and um and 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 be willing to share their personal mindfulness so be very vulnerable too and um and i you know i had lots and lots of feelers out and i hadn't hadn't gotten the timing right and uh I got really quiet and meditative. I mean, for a split second, I'm not kidding. And it was like Mark Holly, And I was like, yeah, oh my gosh, when I started writing, I was like, this is, I'm so grateful that you were, that made, yeah. made yourself available. Um, so we only have a few minutes left, Mark, and I want to thank you again for uh, talking to us and mentioning this wonderful book called See No Color, which is about uh, transracial adoption in America and um, really kind of in in some ways to, speaks to the intersection of race and culture and um, and the elephant in the room of systemic, um, racism in the United States. Um, I'm going to put a link also on our Facebook page for an interesting cartoon about teaching systemic racism for anybody who's privileged enough to still not realize it still exists. And, uh, Mark, do you have any parting comments in the next couple of minutes?
1: I would say that, um, with this movement spreading across the globe right now, I'm, I'm happy to see it in Chicago. I'm happy to see it in Los Angeles. I'm on the on the West Coast are showing a lot of solidarity right now. Mm. And right now people are starting to realize that like they're saying that they are connected. Um, but people are starting to hesitate and like, pause and think, what am I supposed to do? Yeah and they'll come they'll come to me and say, Mark, tell me where I'm supposed to go. Mm. And like I, I give people the same advice that was given to me um, by a good uh, contracting friend of he's actually another Colombian that I worked with in Afghanistan. And he said that uh we need to do what we're good at, where we're needed. Yeah. Good. And it's, it's a, it's a simple thing. And it's something that, uh, again, if you overanalyze it, you can pause in that, uh, analysis paralysis. Kind of, yeah. Right? So, and I've been caught in that too, plenty of times in business decisions, but like when stuff hit the fan here, I realized like I need to do what I'm good at, where I'm needed mm-hmm. and, uh, not make any exceptions that. So that's going of be supporting a lot of the community watch groups that are all around here. They need some training. They need some experience, um, but also just being a, trying to just again use what I'm good at to help people feel safer looking about things. Um, and I, I wrote a post recently about that too. It doesn't matter if you're a consultant or crocheting; like, with something that you're good at that somebody else needs. That's right. And it's been incredible to see the amount of like masks that have been made that are being handed out at all the protests. I ride my bike when I go to the protest, I'll stop by some mm. one of the neighbors who just walk out with a with a bag of masks.
0: Oh wow! It,
1: and then you yeah. just start passing all these masks out. Wow! Those are just people that, you know, maybe they're maybe they're a vulnerable person. Maybe they yeah. already have some kind of preconditions. Yeah. and they still want to do something to yeah. help the protesters. So they're making all these nests, mm. passing them out on the street, and then wow. people like myself and others are just dropping them off.
0: That's wonderful. Instead of sitting and shaming, right? But, but doing something. Mm-hmm. So Mark Holly yeah. of Atlas Defense, I want to thank you again, and <clears throat> thank you for leaving us with a parting thought to uh, do what oh. we're good at where we are uh it's been so nice having you namaste and we'll see you later meditators